All right. If you have your Bibles tonight, uh, why don't you open up to the book of Acts? So now we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And yes, kids are dismissed. Thanks for reminding me, children. <laughs> I tell you what, that's an awesome sound, isn't it? Having kids, I say it's life in the church. It's an amazing thing. Um, anyways, we're looking at verses 1 through 12 tonight. And as we um, begin, I'll read this here in just a moment. But a couple questions that I want to ask to kind of get our, our mind frame of where we're going tonight. One is this, does God still move in power today? In 2023, does God still move in power? And if so, how does he do it, and who does he do it through? Uh, it's going to be kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight as we get into what is commonly known as Pentecost, where um, the, the promise that Jesus gave his disciples in chapter 1 about the Holy Spirit coming came to fruition when they received the, the Holy Spirit. So um, tonight we're going to be continuing on in this book um, that, we, as we've said, was written by um, Luke. Um, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is kind of his second letter, if you will, Luke being the first one, this being the kind of continuation of um, the, the Apostles' ministry. Um, and again, today we're going to be looking at um, when the, these, these Christians received that first gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and read that, and then we will dig into it. So starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, it says this, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave, this, gave them this ability. At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem, and when they heard the loud voice, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear um, in their, their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And it says in verse 12, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What could this mean? They asked each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to be here tonight, the opportunity, God, to um, just to have this book in our hands, Lord, that is not just any book, but it's, it's your word, your written word, God, spoken to us, Lord, to, to give us wisdom on how to live our lives, God, to instruct us on who you are and, and what you want from us. And, and I, I just pray, God, tonight, Lord, that you would speak. Heavenly Father, you know exactly what we need. Lord, you know, you know our lives, you know our struggles, you know our doubts. Father, whatever it is that we need tonight, I pray you would speak to us as individuals because you love us and see us individuals, God, and I praise you for that. So God, tonight, above all things, be glorified in the service and in us, and I just pray you would reign in the service in Jesus' name, amen. So who's ever heard of the term Pentecost? One of us. Two of us, three of us. Okay, this would be the part where we uh, like, you know, interact a little bit. <laughs> I'm sure if you've been around the church for very long at all, you've probably at least heard the term Pentecost, but I'm sure very few people probably know exactly what that term Pentecost even means. 
Um, now, in its simplest form, it, it literally just means 50. Um, that kind of, sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But that's literally kind of what, what Pentecost means. And it was given this name because it was a Jewish feast day that was celebrated 50 days after the last Jewish feast day. Um, now, to understand this properly, we have to have a little bit of understanding of the feast days that were given to the nation of Israel. If you remember when um, Moses was up on Sinai and he got the Ten Commandments, he also got the law and, and all got its instructions for the people. And part of that were um, these feast days, and there were seven of them that were are recorded in, um, I think it's in Leviticus chapter 23. And we're not going to go through all seven of them. Really, we're just going to look at three of them. They're kind of pertinent to what we're talking about here tonight. But um, what we're going to see is those those Things like in Leviticus that we look at Leviticus and go, boring. Um, Maybe you'll see them in a little bit different different light tonight because it really is amazing how just a simple feast day uh, has such um, just amazing imagery of, or I'm really um, speaking forward of what Christ was going to do um, later later on. So, for instance, um, the three we're going to be talking about tonight are um, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and what's known as the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Now. The Passover um, was a uh, feast day that commemorated that time when, if you remember, when the Israelites were held as slaves in Egypt. And um, God told Moses that the the angel of death was going to come through and the firstborn of all the land of Egypt was going to die, right? Because Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. And so God instructed Moses to instruct the people to take an unblemished lamb and take it and and, and sacrifice it and take its blood and and put it over top the the post of their um, doors, right? And if they did that, when the angel of death saw that blood there, they would pass over their house and that house would be spared, hence the word, Passover, right? Now, if you remember, Jesus was crucified at Passover. And it's just interesting that, that Jesus is spoken of in Scripture as the sacrificial lamb. Um, in, in particular, in John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day um, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the, the events that we kind of celebrate around Easter, we have Good Friday and then we have Easter Sunday. Now, Good Friday is when Jesus died, right? Now, what's interesting about the way these feast days worked is that they started the night before and would, and would end at the evening of the next day. So if you can remember the, the, remember the kind of scene of events, on Thursday night, Jesus was with his disciples eating um, the Last Supper, right? The, the, what that was was the, the Passover meal. So he was eating a Passover meal, but we which we kind of know as the Last Supper on Thursday night. Well, he was arrested, and on Friday he was crucified, which that Friday was Passover. And then if you remember, after he had died, um, they had to take the body down because they wanted to take it down before the Sabbath, which would have started there on Friday night going into Saturday night because they wanted to take him down so they could begin preparing his body because once the Sabbath hit, they couldn't do any work. And so Thursday night, is Passover into Friday, where he dies. He's taken off the, 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 uh, the, the cross, and then that, sat, that Friday night there is, start, is the start of, of the Sabbath. Now, what's interesting is that's the start of also the next feast day, which, the, which was the feast day of the first fruit, which was started on that, that actually was the, the next day after Sabbath. So, anyways, the feast of first fruits, just follow me, it'll all make sense in a second. It, it took place on um, the, sab- after the, the day after the Sabbath, which would have been what? A Sabbath was on Saturday. What's the day after Saturday? Sunday, right? So you have Sabbath, you have the Passover on Friday, 
you have the Sabbath on Saturday, Sunday the Feast of First Fruits start. Now, what took place in the Feast of First Fruits essentially was this. The Israelites would bring a sheep of their first grain and present it to the priest as the first fruits of the harvest. Now, when you think about Easter, what do we celebrate on Easter? The resurrection of Christ, right? So Jesus dies on Friday, he's in the grave, he rises from the dead on Sunday, and it's just interesting what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 says. It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have died. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the Passover lamb, the true sacrificial lamb, the one the Passover looked forward to, Jesus was crucified on Passover. And then the Feast of First Fruits, which was the first fruits of the harvest, was Jesus' resurrection day. And he was the first one, the first fruits, if you will, of all who rise from the dead. The first fruits meaning the first of, of many, right? And so Romans 8.11 says that uh, because if the spirit of, of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give our mortal bodies life through the spirit who dwells in us. So he was the first one to rise from the dead, and all who are in him will rise thereafter. Now we get to the Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, which again occurred 50 days after the First Fruits Festival, hence the name Pentecost. Um, in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus spent about 40 days after his resurrection with the apostles, and then from the moment he ascended to the, moment to the day Pentecost came was 10 days, and again, that's where we kind of get 50. And what's interesting about this feast, it was known as the Harvest Festival, the, the Feast of Weeks was also, term, in term, like Jewish terms, would also called sometimes the, the Feast of the Harvest. And it's just interesting that as we see here in our text today, the church was started, the harvest begins, and although we're not going to get to it till next week, the, the events of this particular day that Pentecost um, happened, the church began and the harvest of 3,000 souls came to Christ that day. And isn't it, I mean, like I said, just those three little feast days, Passover and the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, or what we know as Pentecost, it's all symbolic from the, the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ until Christ's church gets his beginning. And so um, when you read those old things, like in Leviticus, trust me, they have way more significance than we usually give them credit for. As we think about the Feast of Pentecost, it is interesting in Matthew 9, Jesus says in verse 37 and 38, he told his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers refuse to pray to the Lord of the, uh, who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send workers out into his field. And isn't it interesting that uh, when he said, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth in chapter 1 there, today we see that come to fruition. And what he told them in Matthew 9 he was sending them out as workers to go reap the harvest um, of, of, of God's kingdom. It just really is just an amazing thing, just the picture that that gives us. But, but anyways, if we look at verse, um, the second part of verse 1 here, it says that, that all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now, how many were there? I mean, we don't know exactly, but we can probably assume that it was um, the disciples. Um, it says, if you look back at verse chapter 1 there in verse 15, it says during that time when about 120 believers were gathered together in one place. So we can assume more than likely that when it says that all the believers were gathered in the one place, it was at least the 120, um, if not more. Again, we don't know the exact number, but there were 
certainly quite a few there. And then comes the question of where were they at exactly? Um, some of your Bibles say they were in, gathered in a house together. Mine just says simply that they were meeting together in one place. And really, there, nobody really knows exactly where they were. Some think they were in the upper room of the house where they were praying in chapter 1. Some think that they were actually in the temple courts on Sunday where they were worshiping the Lord and kind of meeting together. But wherever they were, um, they had to have been a place where many people heard what was going on because at least 3,000 of them rushed to see what was going on. We know at least 3,000 of them were saved. We're, we're going to see later in chapter 2 here. But uh, wherever they were at, they were in a place where it was public enough that people heard it and people rushed to wherever they were at. Now, it is of note that it says that they were there together. Some of the older um, translations say they were there in one accord. The idea is that they were unified together in one place. Now, Again, I, my mind speculates, but I was just thinking if like, there was only one or two of them, this probably wouldn't have been as powerful of a moment as it was. Like if, if some of them decided not to go that day or, or, or just a few of them decided to go wherever they were at, it probably wouldn't have been as powerful because we see kind of later on it says these people from all these nations heard these people speaking in all of their languages. And it really is just a, th a thing just to think about that because they were united together there, God was able to do something absolutely incredible through them, and I was just thinking about that, how, how God and can do um, amazing things through us as individual Christians, but boy, how much more could God do if all Christians binded together in unity and were seeking God and unified in spirit like these people were? How much could God do through 20 people, 30 people, 50 people, 100 people? He can do great things through one, but man, when we're bond together, what an amazing thing that could be. Now, if we look at verse 2, it says, Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the, the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. So there it talks about the Holy Spirit described as wind. It's interesting that in the Greek language that this word um, for spirit is either the word wind or the word breath. And it's just interesting, was this the, the breath of God being blown through the town when they received the Holy Spirit. Um, it, it is interesting in, in, the, in the Bible, though, we see um, the Holy Spirit described, especially in the Old Testament, but even the New, as either wind or even the breath of God. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 37, and this is kind of the, the passage where the, the dry bones come to life. In Ezekiel 37, verses 9 and 10, it says this, He said to me, Speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies, and they all came to life and stood up on their feet. Um, that was a, a picture of the Holy Spirit coming into somebody and giving them new life. The, the whole idea back in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus and you're going to be born again and just the Holy Spirit breathes new life into people and there it's described as breath. Um, in John chapter 3 and verse 8 it says where um, the wind blows wherever it wants just as you can, you, just as you can hear the wind but I, can, I can't, let me start over. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from and where it is going so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So there it describes wind as the Spirit. And so it's, it, it makes sense why God used this particular sign of wind, but he also used the sign of fire. As you see in verse 3, it says, Then what, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. It, it is interesting, um, in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 11, listen to what John the Baptist said. 
He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water, those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But he says, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to, uh, to, to, uh, to, be a, to be a slave or carry his sandals. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it's just interesting that the two signs that are used are the signs that were spoken of of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, that of wind and that of the breath of God. And here you have this mighty rushing wind and these flames of fire that come and rest upon these people. Well, in verse 4, we see that everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. It began speaking in other languages. The Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And it's just of, of note that it says that everyone there was filled with the Holy Spirit. So all the believers, all the Christians, it wasn't just some of them. It was all of them there. And then what they spoke was actually native languages. It, 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 languages from there, languages from Africa, languages from um, Asia, languages from all over the place. Now, many of your Bibles say they spoke in other tongues, but as we kind of read on in these verses, it was clear, especially there through, from you know, verses 8 on, that, that the languages they spoke weren't some mystical language. It was actually physical languages that represented people groups that were on the earth. And in verse 5, it says, At the time there were devout Jews from literally every nation living in Jerusalem. It, it, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that the Holy Spirit came at this time because during Passover and these feast days that followed, which were, you know, at least 50, what, 52 days or something like that. Basically what the law required was for every able-bodied Jewish um, male to travel to Jerusalem to attend these feasts and offer their sacrifices, no matter who they were and no matter how far they were. It was part of Jewish law, whether they lived in Africa or whether they lived in Europe or whether they lived in Asia, it didn't matter. They were supposed to travel during these feast days to Jerusalem. And again, verse 5 tells us that there were Jews there from every nation. How far did they travel? I mean, we don't really know. This has nothing really to do with this message, but it is interesting. Did you know that in Ohio, like the state of Ohio here in the United States, they found this, this clay tablet with this writing on it, and they had no idea what it was. They couldn't figure it out. Because it was in this burial Indian mound that they, that they dated back to like 1 to 500 B.C., like before the time of Christ. And these ancient burial mounds, like you've probably seen, we have some in Illinois down here too. But anyways, they finally figured it out when they turned it right side up. And it was ancient Hebrew, and on it was the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? That there may have been Jews that traveled here to the Americas 2,000 years ago or more. It's kind of an interesting little note. Um, so, you know, we don't know where they were all at or how far they traveled. What we do know is that they, they spoke in every language because verses 8 and 11, again, it, it only mentions a few nations, but verse 5 says literally every nation was present, and those present, according to verse 8, they all spoke in their native languages. So in verse 6, we see that um, when they heard this loud noise, everyone came running. Uh, they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Now, what drew them there? What drew them there was the wind. Now, what this was, we don't know, but it was like this. It says, some of them say this violent rushing wind came through. It was almost like this hurricane force wind that just, and people were just like, what in the world was that? It was so prominent that literally thousands of people came and they gathered to where that place was. And when they got there, what they heard was amazing. They weren't just hearing them speak in their own language. What they were hearing was they were hearing them speaking the wonders of God in their language. 
Now, they were amazed partly because it was a commonly held view um, that the people from Galilee were essentially like these uneducated people that, I guess, spoke with some sort of notable accent. So if you've ever met anybody from the South, you probably know what I'm talking about. You know where they could come. You know I mean? That's kind of the same idea. People from Galilee, that they spoke with this supposed, supposed you know, whatever, and, and so they knew they were there, and it really surprised them that these Galileans were speaking their language. And one other notable thing just about this particular event, and we're going to get into some application here in a moment, but many theologians, I mean, I would agree with them, they believe that this event of Pentecost really was a, a shift or almost a reversal, if you will, of what happened in the Tower of Babel. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 11, like you read these crazy stories, they're only a few verses long, where people were supposed to be dispersed throughout the world at this time, right? Because what did, what did, uh, what did God tell Noah and, and, his, and his sons? He said, go populate the earth, multiply, spread out. Well, they did. They gathered in the city. Instead of doing what they were supposed to, they gathered. Then they, they began to build this tower. We're going to build a tower all the way to heaven. And because God saw their rebellious hearts, it says he confused their languages and dispersed them. And so sin brought them, what happened is that's why we have all the languages of the world. If you wonder why we have a thousand different dialects, go back and read Genesis chapter 11. You'll find out exactly where the languages of the world came from. And so because of sin, he separated man's language and, and, and he, he moved people apart around the world. But what happened here is like the reverse of that. When the Holy Spirit came, he gave them utterance. Like he gave them the ability to speak in different languages. And it's just amazing how sin tears apart and yet the Holy Spirit, the gospel, brings people back together. And not just brings them back together, but literally back together in one family. Those people that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it says they're part of the family of God. All adopted children of our Heavenly Father, which is why we can call each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just, just a cool little thing. Now, as, as we get down to verses 9 through 12, again, we're not going to read all these again. But again, what verse 12, most, verse 12 stuck out to me, that said they were, they were amazed and perplexed. And what could this mean, they said. I mean, no doubt they were amazed and, uh, and about what had just happened. And um, they were so amazed that it really just completely opened the door for Peter, like in, in verses 14 on, to stand there and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, which is really, as we're going to see, really the whole point of God's pouring out of the Holy Spirit. These signs and wonders weren't for the disciples as much as they were for the people that they were ministering to or reaching because it completely opened the door for the gospel of Christ to be spoken. Now, that's kind of the story. Now let's bring some application to it. As we think about the events of Pentecost, um, there's a sense in which this was a one-time event, like that the exact things that happened on Pentecost probably aren't going to happen again. Um, for instance, that's the only time in Scripture we see um, the, this, this, this rushing wind related to the giving of the Holy Spirit. We don't see that again in the New Testament. Um, we never see another time where, where tongues of fire come down. Um, and so this was, in some sense, um, kind of a one-time event, and those signs really, I think, were a lot for the disciples, um, because when they were, they told, Jesus said, the, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, you're going to be baptized in the Spirit. What's that? They've never experienced it before. And it would make sense that he used wind and he used fire, because those signs they would have recognized and connected to the Holy Spirit. Hey, Doug, would you mind turning the heater off over there? I think people are smoking. Thank you. 
Anyways, um, but what we definitely see is evidence of the Holy Spirit's power through the rest of the book of Acts. For, for instance, people are saved. Um, I mean, there's definitely, obviously, evidence of the Holy Spirit there. People are healed. Um, we even see supernatural giving of the, the sign of, the, of people speaking in other tongues or other languages, especially in Acts chapter 10 when the Gentile people are given the, the filling of the Holy Spirit through that. And although we never see an event exactly like this again, we, we can certainly see that the Holy Spirit has been active and is still active even in our world today. And in fact, if you are a born-again Christian, think about this. We sing a song like this. The, the, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead was the same spirit that came on Pentecost and dwelt in these disciples. The same Holy Spirit that dwelt in the disciples and enabled them to do these incredible things, to turn the world upside down for Christ, to be these incredible witnesses for Jesus. Do you realize that that same spirit lives in us? If you're a Christian, you had the same Holy Spirit living in you that lived in Paul. The same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus when he walked the earth. The same Holy Spirit that lived in Peter when he walked the earth. And it's not like some diminished power. The the Holy Spirit never loses power. And we have the same Spirit living in us as God's people. Now as we think about our verses for today and our remaining time together, I want us to consider kind of the work of the Spirit that's going on to this day. Um, And and so what I want to talk about first is that the Holy Spirit as far as it relates to the who. Like, Like who gets it? Who, who does the Holy Spirit come into? And, and really, it's the Holy Spirit comes and was sent for all Christians. In verse 1, again, we see on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were gathered together, meeting in one place, and, and everyone present, verse 4, says it was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, one thing in the New Testament that is absolutely clear is that at the moment of salvation, and what I mean by that is this, when a person understands they are a sinner, looks to Jesus as their Savior, receives Him into their lives as their Savior and Lord, receiving the forgiveness of their sin, that's how we get saved, right? When somebody does that, the Holy Spirit of God comes in. He makes His dwelling in us as Christians. We're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, In Him you also trusted, speaking of Christ, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. And again in 1 Corinthians three sixteen, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit is living in you. He's in you. He goes with you wherever you go. And He will be, you, be with you and be in you until the day you see Jesus face to face. That really is an awesome thought, and yet that really is a humbling thought at the same time, isn't it? I mean, think of, uh, just, just as a side note, but not really a side note, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Listen to what this says. Again, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know, as we think about the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us, that means that whatever we expose our eyes to, we expose the Holy Spirit to. Wherever we go, the Holy Spirit goes. Whatever we say, the Holy Spirit inside of us is hearing. It's just kind of a humbling thing. It's an amazing of a thing it is that the Spirit of the living God dwells in us. It should awaken us to that reality that we need to walk in holiness and righteousness because of that fact as well. Because as that verse says, once we were bought and paid for, once we were redeemed with the blood of Christ, guess who we belong to? We belong to Jesus. 
We need to live our lives like it. Now, if the Holy Spirit is in us as Christians, then comes this question like, what does he do in us? And then there's two sides of us that I want to talk about. I want to talk about what the Holy Spirit does for us as individuals for a moment, and then I want to talk about how the Holy Spirit uses us and works through us to reach other people as well. So what does the Holy Spirit do for us as individuals? We'll see here in a minute. There's no doubt the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can be witnesses for Christ. But before we um, get there, I want to talk for a minute about what the Holy Spirit does for us as individuals. Now in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, um, Jesus told the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, excuse me, until the Father sends you the gift he promised you, as I told you before. The Holy Spirit was a gift. It was a gift to them as individuals. It was an amazing gift, an incredible gift that God gave to them as people. Um, And in verse 11, again, we see that all these people um, speaking in their own language about the wonderful things that God has done. There's no mistaking that after the Holy Spirit came, um, that those apostles were changed forever. But what's interesting about this account is that the um, response of the apostles and the Christians with them when they received the Spirit was simply they were worshiping and praising God. Did you notice that they didn't ask for the sign of the Spirit? They didn't ask for, they had no idea that they were about to speak in tongues. Like that's not something that, that's not information that Jesus divulged to them. They weren't, he wasn't like, hey, go to Jerusalem and when you get there, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to see these crazy flames and when you do, you're going to start speaking these other languages that you don't know. That's not what he said. He just said, simply go, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they received that, they were so overcome that they were praising God. They were speaking the wonders of his works and the wonders of who he was. And although it was the wind that drew these people there, what amazed and perplexed them was certainly that they were speaking other languages, but it wasn't just how they were speaking, it was what they were speaking. These wonderful works of God. So, what does the Holy Spirit do to, in us as individuals when he comes inside of us? And I'll just say it like this, the Holy Spirit activates in us what Jesus accomplished for us. The Holy Spirit activates in us what Jesus accomplished for us. Here's what I mean. For instance, when we come to faith in Christ, we're cleansed of sin, right? So look at Jesus' part. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, If we are living in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all of our sin. So Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, and through that blood we're cleansed of sin. And yet what Jesus accomplished, we're going to see here in Titus 3, the Holy Spirit activates in us. So Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, Um, Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And he says, he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, a new life through the Holy Spirit. So the washing, the new life, although Jesus did the work, the activation of that came through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So that's true with the cleansing of sin. It's also true in the new birth that we just saw, and we're going to see here in a moment. So in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, We died, we were buried with Christ by baptism, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the, glory, the glory power, glorious power of the Father. Um, it says, Now we also may have new lives. So again, Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, made it possible for us to be born again. And yet, look what Jesus said about it in John chapter 3. 
John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Great question, right? So Jesus replied in verse 5, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Isn't that interesting about the wind? Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So new birth accomplished by Jesus, but it is activated through the Holy Spirit. Same thing when it comes to our adoption into God's family. John chapter 1 and verse 12, all who believed in Christ and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And yet, in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we can call him Abba Father, for his Spirit joins with our Spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So even in our adoption as God's children, Jesus made it possible, the Holy Spirit activates it. And this is just kind of the pattern. We see it again, even how we were united together in one body, the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all. And yet... We see in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body, and so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So Jesus, like when we think about the best things of the Christian life, I mean, we are washed free, clean, we are set free, we are forgiven, we're sanctified, we're made children of God, we're connected together as the body of Christ. Jesus did all all that, and yet the Holy Spirit activates all that in us. So what an incredible gift it is to have the Holy Spirit. An amazing, amazing gift. Now on top of those things, the Holy Spirit gives us understanding of God's Word, gives us God's wisdom and counsel. The Holy Spirit comforts us in our times of need with God's comfort. He activates God's supernatural love in our lives. He gives us his joy and his peace. The Holy Spirit gives us strength to follow God's word. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to, to apply the truths that we hear so that we can be the best witnesses for Christ that we can be. Everything that you experience as a Christian, from the understanding of God's word to even being drawn into salvation, it was all of the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made it possible. The Holy Spirit activates those things in our lives. So never, ever, ever look past this incredible gift we've been given by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, verse 11 says the people were declaring that the wonderful works that God has done. It's interesting that the vast majority of the songs that are sung by Christians in worship are centered around the wonderful things that God has done. Isn't it that interesting? When the, Spirit, when the Bible says we need to worship in spirit and in truth, and isn't it interesting that the worship songs we sing are all songs declaring the praises of God? You know, the work of the Holy Spirit in us as individuals is an amazing thing, and there's, and there's not a doubt that the Holy Spirit is a gift. Uh, the gift is certainly something that we should declare God's praises for, but the Holy Spirit is not for us alone. And in fact, when it comes to 
these particular signs and wonders that the disciples were accomplishing, even this, 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 the, the tongues that we see here, it wasn't for them. That, that wasn't the gift. That was the gift only for their witness. That was specifically for the other people. So I want to talk for a moment about what the Holy Spirit does through us. Again, we, we, we know Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we talked about that, but we're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We're going to be His witnesses telling people about Him everywhere. And so the, the power of the Holy Spirit that's given to us is not for us alone. It's given so that we can declare the message of Jesus to the lost world around us. And that's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 2. When they were filled with the Spirit, they began to speak in other languages. And the result of this in verse 12 was that the people stood there amazed and perplexed and began to ask each other what in the world was going on. Again, what we're going to see next week, as I said, this completely opened the door for Peter to begin to proclaim the message of Christ. He, he, we're going to see him proclaim that, the, 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 that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was truly the Son of God, that he truly died and rose again. And, and the, we get to the end and the people go, what must we do? Give your lives to Jesus and be baptized in his name. <laughs> this whole event was for the benefit of those people. Now, question. If the power of the Holy Spirit is for our witness, in what ways does God still do that today? Like, does God still do crazy things like allow people to speak in other languages? Interesting question. I'll answer it just with this. One of my best friends in the world, his name's... Uh, Pastor Jeremy Horton. He pastored in Ashton for a few years, a number of years ago. And, and he was telling me about a mission trip that he was on over in Africa. Can't even remember the country, what it was in, but he, I remember the story. Um, he, was, he was doing, doing some ministry, and this, um, this woman came up to him who was super, super sick. Um, some, I can't remember what the ailment was, but she was super, super sick. And then they asked him to just pray for her. And he says, Brad, he says, I'm telling you the truth. He says, I, I got down on my knee, and I just began to pray for this girl. And I didn't, I wasn't any of the wider. I just prayed and I said, amen. He said, when I got up, I looked and the people were there with their jaws wide open, just staring at me. And he's, he asked the interpreter, he's like, what's going on? And he just looked at me and says, they want to know how in the world did you learn to speak their language? He's like, what are you talking about? I just spoke English. God took what he, he translated that to their ears. He spoke in English, and God translated to their language. And those people were amazed at the power of God. So does God move like that? I would agree it's probably not the norm, but I'm not, I'm not going to put God in the box and say that God can't move in miraculous ways still today. You know, I hear stories all the time as I read um, things that, I get, that get sent to me about missionaries and stuff, about um, God healing people um, because Christians are praying for them. I've heard about people being healed of cancer. I, I've heard about people with demonic spirits being set free. I've heard about people that were on their deathbed and, and there was no hope, and yet Christians come in and pray for them and next thing you know they're sitting up in bed and everything's fine God still moves God still does incredible incredible miracles through his people still today now those things are awesome but how do we forget about the greatest miracle of all that is overlooked which is the miracle of salvation like when when God opens the eyes of someone who was lost in sin and reveals their need for a savior 
I mean, think about how many lives have been transformed through Jesus, how many broken marriages have been restored, how many lives have been saved. And, you know, so often we look for these crazy, miraculous signs as Christians that we read about in the Bible, but we should never forget that all of those miracles were given for one purpose, to proclaim the name of Jesus. You know, all those signs and miracles, they were all to testify of Christ. It, it wasn't for the one doing them. I mean, think about Jesus, why he did the things that he did. It was to show people that he was the Messiah. It was to show people that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. As we're going to see in the book of Acts, why is it that the apostles were given the power to do the miracles they were for the same reason? To testify that Jesus is Savior and Lord. The purpose of the miraculous signs and wonders are to testify to Christ. They're not to puff up the believer. And so often what's happened, especially in our American culture, people that chase after these signs and miracles and all these different things, it's all about them and what they're getting. And the point of it's not about them, it's about what they're supposed to be doing with those gifts for people. So let's never get so focused on the outward sign that we lose sight of the greater miracle of all that those signs and wonders are leading to, which are people being saved from sin and having their eternities changed. Amen? You know, most time when people come to crazy signs and wonders, it's through God's people simply walking in faith and obedience. Do you realize that the vast majority of the people that are saved is not because they saw somebody raised from the dead. It's simply because somebody shared them with them the power of Jesus Christ, which is the message of the gospel. Which is the last thing I want to talk about as we close. Simply, it's really more of a question. How, how do we put ourselves in a position to be most effectively used by the Holy Spirit? One thing, we need to be focused and don't allow distractions in our lives. You know, the believers on Pentecost all received the Spirit because they were all together in one place. If some of them would have left Jerusalem, if some of them wouldn't have chosen to be there, they wouldn't have experienced that, at least at that moment, they, they, were, they weren't just, they're just together. They were actively seeking God in, in prayer. You know, and although I believe the Bible teaches that when we, receive the Holy, when we get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, there is also this truth that the Bible tells us that we can quench the Holy Spirit as well. So just because we have the Spirit of God in us as Christians doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is always manifesting Himself through us, if that makes sense. Because the Bible tells us in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Spirit, meaning don't block His work that He wants to do through us. Do you know that we can do that? We can block the power of God working through this. How do we do that? Through disobedience or through distraction. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to, it's just interesting the way it puts it, he says don't be drunk with wine, but instead um, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit and yet be commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because although we have the Holy Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit is not always working through us because we quench Him far too often. It's kind of the idea. You know, Paul was speaking to Christians here, and in, in the idea, at least the way I see it, is that although we all have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that we always allow Him to empower us to the fullest extent that He wishes to. We limit God's power in our lives. 
You know, when we sin, the Spirit is quenched and we don't see the fullness of His power in us. When we're too busy or too distracted by the things of, in our lives, we can also quench the Spirit. Why? Because when we are too busy or too distracted and we often aren't seeking God like we normally would, we aren't ministering to people like we normally would, we often miss opportunities God puts right in front of us. And so we want to see the Spirit of God move in us and through us. We can't have sin in our lives. We can't be distracted. We need to be focused on the Lord seeking Him. We also need to live our lives in a way that shows people the presence of God. You know, how often do we declare the wonders, the wonderful works of God, like outside of church? How often do we speak to non-Christians about the amazing things that God has done in our lives? You know, I don't think we talk about those things enough, even in the church. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how often do we just sit here and talk about the amazing things that God's doing in each one of our lives? I mean, it don't even happen enough in the church. So my guess is it's probably not happening enough out of the church. And yet, what difference would it make if people saw those things and heard those things? You know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to worship Christ as Lord of our lives. And if someone asks about the hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Do people see God's hope in you? You know, I really, really believe with all my heart that people that don't even know it, they're searching for hope. Like in this lost, broken world that we live in, they're searching for something that makes sense, some hope, something to hold on to. Friends, we have it. We have it living inside of us. Are we living it? Are we sharing it? Are we talking about it? And it's the last thing I would say is this. We need to trust in the Holy Spirit's power and tell people about Jesus when he gives us the opportunity. You know, the greatest way the Holy Spirit moves is through the gospel when it is spoken. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the only way somebody can come to salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16 tells us. But you know what Romans 10 tells us? Listen to verses 13 through 15. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? Which is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Friends, the greatest work the Holy Spirit will ever do through us when we use the lips he has given us to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ because that is what truly has the power to save people. When they give their hearts and lives to Jesus, guess what happened to them too? The Holy Spirit comes into them. And all that work the Spirit did in us now happens in them and God begins that transformational work in every single person we reach with the gospel. So does God work? I, I started this message and I'm going to close with this message with the same question. Does the Holy Spirit still move in power in the world today? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And I'm convinced that God still does work and wants to work through each and every one of us. And so the questions are simply this. Are we surrendered to him daily? Are we seeking his power in our life continually? Is there anything hindering his work in our lives? If we're Christians here, we need to ask ourselves, is the Spirit moving through me or am I quenching him? Am I stifling the power of God in my life because I'm too distracted? Or is the Spirit of God working in and through me to reach people around me? And if there's anybody in this place that doesn't know Jesus, you don't even have the Holy Spirit yet, but the good news is you can. 
And it simply comes by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Asking Him to be your Lord, your Savior, to come into your life. And when that happens, the gift you give is the same Holy Spirit that the rest of us have here as well. So make sure you do that if you've never done that. Friends, let's make the choices that we need to make to make sure that we are a vessel that the Holy Spirit can use for His glory so we can be the greatest witness of Christ that we can be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for just the, um, the challenge of the tonight's message. God, it really is amazing to think about what you did through those apostles, and yet it's more amazing as we're going to see next week that that simple act of them just praying and that, that amazing gift reached thousands for you and began this work of the church that we're still benefiting from today. God, let us never forget that your power is still available to us. Let us never forget, Lord God, that you still want to use us as your people. You still want to use us to reach the world. You still, we still have the, the commission and the command to go reach people for Christ, Lord. So I just pray that we as Christians would take that seriously. That you would just examine our hearts and reveal anything in us, Lord God, that doesn't belong. That we can confess those things and get right with you, God, so that we can be used by you to make a difference in our community, in our workplaces, in our world. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you, and we thank these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Guys, let me close. We're going to sing.